Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. They sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, for the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Father, as we look forward to this end that Jesus speaks of, we pray that you would open our ears to your word and teach us from it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, Douglas Adams' sci-fi classic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's this guy, Arthur Dent, who has to vacate his house because it's being demolished to make room for a bypass. And then he has to vacate his planet because that too is being demolished to make room for an intergalactic bypass as well. And he escapes thanks to this Hitchhiker's Guide, this book. And on the cover of the book are these words. Well, do you know what they are? It's a good way to sniff out the sci-fi nerds in the audience. Don't panic. Don't panic, it says on the cover of the book. I like the cover, Arthur says. Don't panic. It's the first helpful or intelligible thing anybody said to me all day. Yeah, I mean, his world is falling apart, literally. And so he needs this encouragement. He has every reason to panic. He has every reason to be alarmed. But in the face of this incomprehensible, in his case, intergalactic mystery, the best advice he can get is about his mindset, about the way he should think about all these things. Don't panic. Don't panic. Plenty of things are about to happen that would naturally lead you to panic, but don't. Now, last week I said that the purpose of biblical prophecy is not prediction, it's preparation. And this morning, thanks to Jesus' words, we're going to dig deeper into what that means. That prophecy is about preparation. 
You might think of it this way. Imagine the future, the plan of God to the end of the age, all written down in a scroll and all sealed up. It's all there. But on the cover of the scroll, these words, don't panic. Because whatever is in there, I'm in control. That's the prophetic mindset. That's the way that Jesus uses prophecy to equip us to react to whatever is about to happen. That's what we see here in Matthew 24. There is, of course, one challenge, which is this. When people tell you not to panic, it's usually because something bad is about to happen. Right? I, when I hear the words, don't panic, don't be worried, I panic, I worry. Like That makes me nervous just to hear that. Because I know that you don't say stuff like that unless things are about to get interesting. And for the disciples, things are about to get interesting. Jesus lays it out for them. Right? They ask the question, when will these things take place? Like, when is this stuff going to happen? And then Jesus lays out, we might think of it as like four traumas, four terrible things that are going to befall them, right? First, there are going to be these rival Christs, these rival messiahs, and they're going to proclaim other kingdoms, right? They're going to come along with their own message, and they're going to claim to be the one. And Jesus says they are going to be persuasive. That's one thing. But secondly, the apostles and those who follow them faithfully, they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be handed over to tribulation. They're going to be killed even. And that trauma, that persecution, Jesus says, is going to trigger apostasy and betrayal and hatred within people who profess to be the church. Third, he says, as those true authorities are being attacked by the world, false authorities, false prophets are going to swoop in and they're going to seduce those who are suffering, those who are being tormented. And then finally, he says, this attack, it's going to take its toll even on the faithful even in those tenacious people who cling to their faith, you're going to see the effects of what's happening. They will cling to their belief, to their creed, but Jesus says they will lapse into lovelessness. Their love will grow cold. All this is what the disciples have to anticipate. This is what they have to look forward to. This is the history that is written for them and for their generation. They have good reason to be alarmed. They have good reason to panic, knowing this is what they have in store. But to answer that, anticipating that natural worry that they would have hearing this stuff, Jesus prepares them. He equips them. He gives them two lines of preparation in our text. He says, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. In other words, he prepares them to remain faithful despite these trials, despite these traumas. Because many are going to claim, 
This is the answer. I know what you believe, but listen to me. Listen to my gospel. Jesus' spiritual kingdom, ah, great idea, but it didn't really work out in practice now, did it? I have a better idea of how this should be. I have a different kingdom, and this kingdom is going to work. I can propose a different king, and this king is going to fight harder. This king is not going to talk about spiritual realities. He's actually going to confront the real problems that we face. For all those who, despite Jesus' words, are still longing for that physical kingdom, who still want to see that physical Israel rise again and throw off their Roman overlords, these new messiahs might seem to have a more compelling message than Jesus did. They promise what the people want, unlike Jesus, who goes to the cross meekly, who doesn't even fight but sacrifices himself. These new messiahs, these guys will be willing to fight. There will be wars and rumors of wars. And you hear that and you think, oh, that sounds bad. But for people who want conflict, that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes you want a little fight in your leaders. See that no one leads you astray, Jesus says. When it seems as if I've failed and others have the answer, don't listen. Be prepared. Stay faithful. That's one line of preparation. But there's another one. He says, see that you are not alarmed. See that you are not alarmed by these things. Jesus prepares us not only to stay faithful, but also to stay calm, not to panic. There are two kinds of turmoil, big picture, that Jesus points to, things that are coming. There's going to be political upheaval on the horizon, nation versus nation, kingdom versus kingdom. But there's going to be natural disaster too, right? He talks about famine. He talks about earthquake. A lot of bad things are going to happen. Things that, that if just one of them were going on, that would be enough to freak you out. But all of them are going to come. And Jesus says, do not be alarmed. Now, when you take our whole passage as a whole, you see that Jesus is not just talking about trauma to the outside world. He's specifically talking about trauma within the church. There are bad things coming down within the body of those who profess faith in Christ. He actually gives seven instances in our text of things that you could look at and say, ah, this is happening within the church. Right? We mentioned the tribulation, the death of the faithful apostles and their followers, people being put to death for their faith. But also, he says, the world's culture will turn on you. It will hate. It will despise those who claim my name. It will be surrounded by a world that hates all those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. This will cause, Jesus says, mass apostasy, right? Falling away. Like people professing faith, but then when tested, turning their backs on it, turning away from it. Disciples will flee the church as the cost of discipleship increases. That's what Jesus says is coming. And those apostates will betray their former brothers and sisters. They'll turn on them. 
They will hate them, Jesus says, the people they once professed to love. They will listen to false prophets who discredit the faithful followers of Christ. And this rising lawlessness all around will cool the love even of the faithful so that the church itself seems to be just clinging to joyless uh, perseverance, determined to hold on, but without the joy. When I listen to that description, the things that Jesus says, that sounds like good reason to panic. It sounds like good reason to be alarmed. It's not a world I would want to live in. It's not a church I would want to be a part of. And I imagine the disciples hearing this stuff felt the same way as we would. And yet to this, Jesus encourages them. He says, do not be alarmed. As natural as it would be under those circumstances to panic, as tempting as it would be under those circumstances to follow a different king, Jesus says we have to prepare ourselves and remain faithful. We have to see it coming and remain faithful. He gives two comforts to his disciples as they anticipate these coming tribulations. First of all, he says, this is happening according to God's plan, and that should be a comfort. Right? Ordinarily, when we see things going badly, uh, we assume it's because like, they're failing. Right? The church is this way. If you join a church and half the people at the church apostatize and leave it behind and turn on mother and hate, and the people who are left, I mean, they still show up, but they don't seem like they have much joy or love, right? They're just kind of showing up, I don't know why, just because they're, they're ornery or something. Um, that is not a church that I would want to be a part of. And I would say that church is failing. That church is not doing what it ought to do. But then if God came along and says, all this that's happening is happening according to my plan, that would change the way I saw those circumstances. Jesus is saying these political turmoils, even these natural disasters, even these trials that come upon those who profess faith are just judgments on sin and thus are necessary. He says this must take place. These things must happen. And when he says that, what he's saying is, all this evidence is not evidence that God's plan is failing. This is God's plan working itself out. And if that's true, then you shouldn't panic over it. You shouldn't freak out about it. You shouldn't think, oh no, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. In other words, the trials that befall the church, the tribulations that befall the world are not a sign that God has lost control. Jesus says this must take place. This is not, as we've said before, the failure of God's plan. It's part of the fulfillment of God's plan. So that ironically, when you see the world through this prophetic mindset that Jesus possesses, the things that cause panic in people, the things that undermine their faith, become the very things that reinforce your faith and the very things that confirm, ah, yes, Jesus said this would take place. And here it is. Jesus said we would be tried 
and it's happening now. When the apostles went to their deaths, persecuted, martyred, none of them went to their deaths saying, I didn't see this coming. If I had only known, if I had realized that following Jesus was going to end up this way, like how could they? He'd already told them this was going to happen. If they already knew that this was the end, how differently they must have viewed their deaths. How differently they must have viewed the failure of their ministry, knowing that from the beginning, Jesus had said, this must take place. So That's one comfort. But there's another one too. Jesus says that these signs, these things that are taking place in the world, do not signal what you think they signal. Like all these things that are happening that you think are signaling the end are actually signaling a new beginning. He says, these things are birth pains. That something is being given birth to. There's something good that is emerging in all of this suffering is like the suffering that a mother endures. But she endures it in hope. Because even though the suffering itself is not good, what is being born is good. And it changes the way you endure what you have to endure. The suffering of childbirth, I'm not speaking from firsthand experience, but the suffering of childbirth is a different kind of suffering than torture, for example, because of its end, because of what it leads to. Jesus says this is the same. This old age is coming to an end, but something new is being born. This is not the end. It is, if anything, the, the beginning of a new age. When you see my church assaulted, Jesus says, you see people who were once with you following other prophets, you're going to think that my kingdom has exploded on the launch pad. But in fact, this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, this beautiful spiritual kingdom is launching. It is coming into existence. It is being inaugurated through these experiences. And again, knowing that changes the way that you endure what you must endure. That first generation of disciples who heard these words were being prepared not for something that was going to happen in the far-off future. They weren't being told, look, you don't need to worry about this, but one day some bad stuff is going to happen. Like They were being told the course of their own lives. Right? The events that Jesus is talking about here in this passage, scholars would say probably point, if not entirely, mostly to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. They were going to experience these things. It was going to happen to them. But the way that Jesus prepared that first generation for their trials also prepares us for the trials that we face. Like how the trials of the first generation were to be faced. I mean, that's every generation that faces those same difficulties, including ours, if you think about it. 
right? This is not a description unfamiliar to us. These are not uh, traumas that we can't relate to. In fact, it's just the opposite. Even though we know Jesus is speaking prophetically about things that are going to happen to them, it seems as if what he's saying applies all too easily to us. Jesus speaks to one generation, but he has a message for every generation, including this one. Now, I realize that here in North America, the relatability of being handed over to tribulation and put to death is more metaphorical than literal, right? You probably are not going to be killed for your Christian faith. However, that doesn't mean that there is no difficulty, that there is no persecution, that there is no hardship that comes from faithfulness. In fact, I would say, although we still have it good, it is more difficult to pursue Christian faithfulness now than it would have been in the past. So when Jesus says, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, that's more relatable to us. That feels like something that that we have a little bit of experience of. And like their generation, the effects of that are similar to us. If you look at the church today, apostasy is the order of the day. Apostasy is in all the headlines, falling away from the faith, turning away from the faith you were raised in and once professed. In the headlines, they write about the great de-churching, but it is not a new phenomena. It's not the case that, that somehow uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic decimated churches. If anything, it, it sort of lopped off branches that were rotted away already. This apostasy has been something that has afflicted us for decades. You say, of course it has. Of course it has. Of course people are leaving the churches. Of course they don't believe in that stuff anymore because science has disproven faith. It just makes sense that people wouldn't continue to cling to religion. But interestingly, it wasn't the rise of science that created this wave of apostasy. Uh, Science and religion lived happily together for quite some time. Something changed, but it wasn't science. It was uh, social acceptance. There's been a shift in the way Christian faith is perceived. It used to be advantageous to be a Christian. Even if you didn't really believe in that stuff, it was good to be a member of a church. You would be respected and looked up to. And so a lot of people who maybe their faith wasn't very serious at least wanted to be identified as Christian. That, of course, changed over time. There was no advantage in being a Christian, but there wasn't necessarily a disadvantage either. Faith was socially acceptable even if it wasn't socially advantageous. But as Christian faith has become more unacceptable, more people flee the church. I don't think there's a great mystery there. I think it actually makes a lot of sense. The less you're insulated from the cost of discipleship, the less discipleship you want. The more it costs you to follow Christ, the less you want to do it if you don't really believe. Now, 
don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I think this is terrible and I wish we could go back to the old days when even people who didn't believe in Jesus pretended like they did for social advantage. I feel just the opposite. I think there is a gift to us in the fact that we have no reason to follow him apart from faith. I think there is something good that that there is no encouragement, or at least less encouragement, to hypocritically pursue Christianity. I don't want people to claim the name of Jesus Christ, but not really mean it. I'm not complaining that we're less insulated from the cost of discipleship. I think the cost of discipleship is sometimes the point of discipleship. I'm just saying that this reality makes Jesus' words relevant to us so that we can understand the encouragement because we can understand the trauma. If you look around at the world that you live in, it's not as if we don't have false prophets. We have plenty of them. We have plenty of alternate kingdoms, plenty of substitute messiahs out there. Uh, Two categories I want you to think about. This is oversimplifying, but uh, two kinds of false prophet. Uh, One kind is the one that's like Jesus, only nicer. We have a lot of those now. They're like Jesus, they're, they're kind and loving, but they're nicer than Jesus because all they are is kind and loving. They never do the judgment thing. They never would dream of of fashioning a whip and driving people out of the temple. That is way too violent for them, right? They take what they like about Jesus and they leave what they don't. And they say, this version of the truth is better than the one that you've heard before. We leave out all of the bad stuff and we focus on love. That's not actually a new insight, though, into Christianity. That's just a kind of false prophet. That's an alternate gospel. There's another kind of false teacher. He's the one who's like Jesus, only tougher. He's kind of the polar opposite of the other guy. The world hates Christianity because it's weak. And if we're going to win, then we've got to start fighting back. Here's a version of the truth that is more aggressive Here's one that jettisons all of that love your neighbor stuff and focuses on strength so that it can win and reverse the tide. That's not a calling to greater faithfulness. That's just another kind of false gospel being proclaimed by a false prophet. You don't need Jesus but nicer. You don't need Jesus but tougher. You need Jesus, period. Now, Jesus notes these prophets come in his name, right? They don't come out and say, hey, I've got a false gospel for you. Instead, they call the true gospel the false gospel. And they say their false gospel is the true one. It turns out the church has been wrong the whole time. But now I know better, so listen to me. To which Jesus says, don't be led astray. Don't fall for that. Jesus hasn't failed. Jesus' kingdom hasn't failed. You don't need what these prophets are peddling, even if it seems that way when you look at the news. So there are false prophets that will lead many astray, but there's also an effect Jesus talks about that happens within the church. It's that, that love grown cold. Now, some interpreters would say this is just another way of talking about apostasy. Like their love has grown cold, and so they've turned on the faith. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus is talking about those 
who remain faithful, who remain in the church, and yet they've lost something. Sometimes people who suffer hardship harden themselves as a result. And I think our generation can be guilty of that. There are a lot of angry, bitter, hardened believers out there. People who profess their faith in Jesus Christ through clenched teeth as a kind of challenge to the world around them. They cling to their creed, but not to their first love. Jesus says the Ephesians were like that. I love the book of Ephesians. It's probably my favorite of the Pauline epistles. But in the book of Revelation, when Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus, although he praises them, there is a problem that he has. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In other words, I know that you listened to Matthew 24. I know that you haven't panicked. I know that you haven't turned away. And yet, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at the first. Right? They didn't fall away. They weren't seduced by false teachers. They exposed false teachers. They didn't panic, but they cooled. They cooled. They didn't have the, the fire that they once did. And Jesus doesn't look at that and say, that's great. I don't care about that love stuff anyway. The main thing is you've toughened up and you've tenaciously held the line. No. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's no room in Jesus' mind for this lovelessness. There's no excuse for it. Which means if you've been tempted by false gospels, you've been tempted to make peace with the world or to fight it with its own weapons, you need to remember where you've fallen from and repent. But it also means that if you've stayed faithful, but you've given yourself permission to practice a loveless faith, then you need to remember where you've fallen from and repent. Because none of those things are acceptable to Christ. Jesus prepares us for hardship ahead, just as he prepared them, but he gives comfort as well. I would say the best comfort that he gives is this. Now, he's given two lines of preparation that we talked about before, the necessity of trials, that they're part of God's plan, not evidence of its failure, and also that this is the pain of childbirth, it's not the pain of destruction, that all these struggles are the thing through which God is bringing to life this new age, but he actually gives more comfort than that. And this is what I want to end with. There are two things he says that are really important. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And when he says that the one who endures to the end will be saved, he's not saying 
things are going to get bad, but you could save yourself by enduring it. Of course he's not. Rather, his message is that the faithful will persevere in faith. He's warning you, don't fall away. And in the same breath, he's saying, you will persevere in faith. You will endure and be saved. As Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We'll see next time as we continue in Matthew 24 that Jesus actually says there are aspects of tribulation and suffering that God cuts short for the sake of the elect. Like to ensure the perseverance of his people, he actually reigns things in, which tells you where his heart is, what his concern is. Those who are faithful will endure in faith. In other words, no persecution, no tribulation, no trial can pluck Christ's people out of his hand. And that is strong assurance. But there's more. Jesus not only says that the one who endures to the end will be saved, but he also says that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. So this persecution, this tribulation, is not going to stop the spread of the gospel of the kingdom. It's not going to happen. It may seem like that would be exactly the thing that would nip it in the bud, but Jesus says no. If you look in Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask Jesus another question along the lines of the Matthew 24 question. They say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answers that and he says, among other things, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we read those words in Acts 1, and we think, ah, someday it'll happen. Someday the gospel will reach the end of the earth. But scholars of the book of Acts will tell you that that quote in Acts chapter 1 is an outline of the book of Acts. And that by the end of the book of Acts, that outline will have been completed. If you go all the way to Acts 28, Paul at the end declares, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And in these words, he's sort of pronouncing like a completion of this transition. Uh, one end and a new beginning as this new age is inaugurated. The Gentiles are the ethnason, the word in Greek that's also translated as the nations, as it is in Matthew 24. Regardless of how you interpret this point in the book of Acts, the point Jesus is making is clear. It's something like, it's not over, until Jesus says it's over. It's like, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and then the end will come. Jesus is saying the end won't come until the salvation of his people. The end won't come until the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, no tribulation, no hardship, no persecution will stop his plan 
from being fulfilled. It's over when he says it's over and not before. The faithful will endure. The kingdom will be proclaimed and then the end will come. The reason why the end fills us with dread, the idea of the end coming fills us with panic is because the end signals failure. Your own life might reflect this. Mine certainly does. The older I get, the more I think about the things I have not yet accomplished in life and perhaps will not. At the beginning of life, it seems like all of your dreams might be fulfilled, and then you reach middle age, and you start to think, well, maybe one or two of those dreams will be fulfilled. And then you reach a certain point, and you're like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. Right? Suddenly, it seems as if when death comes, it's the failure of your attempt to fulfill all that you had planned. And for believers, tribulation and hardship feels a lot like that. In other words, it feels premature. The end feels premature. It's cutting off things that should have been allowed to have their run. Jesus says to us, look, don't panic. The end is coming, but it won't be premature. The end comes when I say it comes, and it doesn't come any moment before that. Put it another way, Jesus wins, and then the end comes. Jesus wins, and then the end. No matter what happens, the faithful will endure and be saved. No matter what happens, the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world. No matter what happens, Jesus will triumph. Jesus will reconcile. Jesus will restore. He has promised it. He will do it. And then the end. The end will come when Jesus has kept every promise and not one moment before. And this is all you have to know. You're puzzled by all of this prophecy stuff. If you're puzzled by like what exactly is going to happen and when, all you need to know is that the end will not come until Jesus has finished what he started to do. All you have to cling to is that. All you have to proclaim is that. Jesus wins, and then the end. So don't panic, because no matter what happens, Jesus will triumph in the end. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.